Welcome to the Crosslands Church Podcast, our mission to help you experience the life with God you've been missing. And now, a message for you. Starting a new series called uh, Who Are You, as you saw in the opening bumper. And the beginning of the service, Pastor Claudette mentioned that the title message is The Gospel Must Change. And maybe you're sitting up and taking notice and saying, wow, is this Pastor Fred's last day? That's a pretty controversial idea. The gospel must change. I've been putting the the content together and and working through the meaning of this message series, and and the content is so complicated that I thought that by way of introduction, I'm going to offer the first message today. So the first message today is just introduction for this whole series. A few years ago, sometime in the past 10 years, I was trying to find it online, I couldn't find it, but there was a there was a commercial, and it's one of those commercials that are so brilliant because they stick with you, but they fail because you can't remember what they're advertising. So it stuck with me, but I can't remember what they were advertising. And it was this, it was sort of like a, a throwback to the 90s when uh, there's a company that's putting out music CDs, and, and there's um, sort of a board meeting, and you can see how it's you know, like this, this smoky room where the, these people that are the decision makers are, are, are trying to figure out how to, how to increase their sales. And uh, it reminds me back in the day, if you're too young, you wouldn't remember this, but we used to get these advertisements in the mail, snail mail, not email, and it would be this massive sheet that had all these like stamps, like postage stamps in it, but each one was a movie title. And they were the first ones, I think, to figure out, to try to get people to sign up for things that they would forget to cancel. And so you see this with some subscription-based services today. But th- what this was, was it was a, it was a movie service and, or a music service uh, where you would order like CDs or DVDs in the mail. And, and this, it was supposed to be this, this sort of tactile engagement where you would pick out the different movies and stick them onto a thing and send it back and say, yeah, send me these movies and you're going to pay one cent for your first three, which is a fabulous deal. But if you forget to cancel... And if you get to tell them which movies you want, they would start sending you movies you didn't want. So they're going to grab them from the, the dusty warehouse of all the movies they couldn't sell. And I think that's what this commercial was sort of referencing. And so they're having this board meeting, and these people are talking around the table, and this one woman in the meeting has this idea. She says, what if we use this new internet to send music to people directly? They can, they can download the music off the internet. And, and the last line of the, of the commercial is great. There's this pretentious-looking 40-year-old who looks like he's obviously trying to look younger than he is. His hair is shaggy. He's got these big rim glasses on and this really pretentious chin beard. And he says, how's that going to help us sell CDs? And so what's funny, especially in hindsight, is most people don't buy CDs anymore. We download them online. And so... If you have a company like that, if you have a decision to make like this, you fall into the trap of thinking that you're in the CD business when you really should be in the music business. You think you're in the DVD business, you should be in the movie business. And what's ironic is now, we download them all. That's so past, it's so irrelevant, it's so obsolete. When I grew up, I grew up in church, and in the church of my teens, we heard the gospel message every Sunday without fail. And, and there, were, there was a concise version of it. And there were a, a couple of different versions, but they all kind of said the same thing. One was known as the four spiritual laws, another was known as the, the Romans road, because it came from four verses that were ripped out of context in, in Romans to justify this, this expression of what the gospel is. And it was basically, uh, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, that's number one. Two, you're a sinner, and because of your guilt, 
God, relationship with God is inaccessible to you. And three, Jesus came to die to offer forgiveness from your guilt, to make a way to God. And then four, the four kind of changed. From, like sometimes it was you have to make a choice to follow Jesus or the result of choosing Jesus is eternal life. That was sort of the, that was the, the message of the gospel that had been for decades, if not centuries. And some people say, yes, that is the gospel. What you said there, I resonate with that, I identify with it, that is what it is. And so there's a problem, the problem is guilt. There's a solution, the solution is forgiveness, and there's a reward or an ultimate aim, and that is heaven. And, and specifically, actually, a sort of a spiritual disembodied heaven, because that's what we've inherited from centuries of theology. Problem is guilt, the solution is forgiveness, the ultimate aim is heaven. When I was a young adult, I've mentioned this before, I, I would be reading through the New Testament and, and I was really confused by the statement that Jesus and his disciples preached the gospel. Because how could they preach before Jesus died and rose again that Jesus died for people's sins? What were they preaching? So I want to take a very, very quick look at scripture to say, today to look at what our, are the gospel messages that are preached in scripture. And so three examples. The first one is pre-crucifixion preaching. The preaching that they did before Jesus went to the cross. Jesus and disciples went around and preached the good news. The first example I want to give is Mark 1 verse 1. The earliest, most scholars believe, earliest gospel that was written. This is the good news. That good news is gospel. That is what the word means. In a lot of translations, it's translated gospel. This is the good news or gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It began. That starts in the next sentence. They translated it that way because it could also be translated the beginning of the good news. So like the NIV or whatever would say, the beginning of the good news about Jesus is the Messiah. Which kind of implies that if Mark 1, 1, if the first verse is the beginning of the good news, it implies that the whole book is the good news. And yet when we want to share Jesus with our neighbor, we don't just spout all of, Mark, all of the book of Mark. So there's something in there, there's something about that story that is good news. In that culture, the word good news, the word that has been translated from gospel, the word gospel, um, it, it meant, the context, it was a political announcement. So if the emperor died, the Roman emperor, the pagan Roman emperor died, there would be a, a sense of unrest or suspense because we don't know what's going to happen. And when the new emperor was crowned or appointed or took power, the good news, the gospel of the emperor's appointment would be spread throughout the empire. Here's the good news, Vespasian is now the emperor. Or Titus is now the emperor, or Nero is now the emperor. In fact, the Mark 1, a lot of scholars believe that it was written around the time when there was a quick succession of four emperors in a row, so there was a lot of unrest or instability. And in that context, Mark comes along and says, here's the good news, here's the gospel, here's the, the royal announcement of who the real king is. He uses terms that the Roman emperor uses, like son of God. Son of God was a, was a title given to the emperor. And so this is a this is sort of a rebellious story, a seditious story, where the announcement is that Jesus is king. That's the book of Mark. But there's also preaching within the book of Mark. Mark 3, 4 says this. Then he, Jesus, appointed 12 of them, 12 of his followers, and called them his apostles, which means people that are sent. They were to accompany him, and he would send them out to preach. Now, you ever had your parents preach at you? You come home past curfew and they start giving you a lecture. That is not what preach means in this context. In the New Testament, preach does not mean a moralistic lecture. 
It's come to mean that because a lot of our church preaching has turned into moralistic lectures. But when the disciples were preaching, the word preach means to announce. So in our service this morning, this is supposed to be the preaching part. But we just came out of the preaching part where Claudette and Mariah are, are announcing the news. These are the things coming up. These are the things you want to get involved in. These are the things that we're offering for, for your family and for your kids to invest in your life. Those are announcements. That's making announcements, preaching. This is the news. And then what, what, what would they preach? The disciples would preach, they would announce, Mark says, God's word. What does that mean? God's message to the people. They would announce good news. Now, that would be, many times it's specific to say good news to the poor. So for those who are downtrodden, those who are disenfranchised, those who are on the fringe, they were preaching good news. And what was the news? The news was God's kingdom is here, or God's kingdom is coming very soon. That's the news. The disciples and Jesus are going around. John the Baptist was preaching God's kingdom is coming. Why does that matter? Because the, the question that was being asked in that culture, and the gospel, the good news was Jesus' message to individuals within a culture. The question is, when will God fix this situation? We are oppressed. We're living under the domination of a pagan empire, Rome, another in a, in a whole sequence of, of pagan empires. When is God going to come? And more specifically, when will he send his chosen one, his Messiah, to come and rescue? And in that context, they're coming and saying, the good news is here. God's kingdom is here. The Messiah is here. That's the gospel preaching in the New Testament. Or in, in, in Mark and Luke and Matthew. After Jesus goes to the cross and he rises from the dead, the preaching changes. It's adjusted. So I'm going to look at a couple of examples in Acts. Acts 5.42 says, Every day in the temple and from house to house, they, the followers of Jesus, continue to teach and preach, announce this message. Jesus is the Messiah. That was the message. Jesus is the Messiah. You've been waiting for the Messiah, and the Messiah came, and this is who it is. It was countercultural. It was counter to the expectations because nobody expected a Messiah, a chosen one of God, to go to the cross. That would disqualify somebody from being a Messiah. But God subverted the story and rose him from the dead, revealing a whole bunch of completely new things about how the kingdom of God was going to come. Not by sword, not by armies, but by self-sacrifice and love. And so the message is, Jesus is the Messiah. Here's another example. Acts 17, verses 2 to 3. As, as was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service, that's where the Jews would worship weekly, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. The question in the culture was, when is the Messiah coming? How we recognize him? And Paul is saying he has come. He was crucified, but he raised from the dead. The gospel, the good news, is the message of Jesus to individuals in our culture that are asking big questions. And their big question is, when is the Messiah coming? And the answer was, he's already come. It's Jesus. Now, that was a message that was specific to the Jews. It says that Paul would show them through Scripture, through prophecy, and, and they, in a culture that they were... They were well-versed in their own scripture. They understood it. They grew up in it. They were, they were immersed in it. And so Paul could, could 
connect the dots and say, Jesus was the Messiah. Look, it was prophesied the whole way. And that was his message to the Jews. The prophesied Messiah has come. But he preached differently to pagans, to non-Jews, because they had zero or next to zero interest in Jewish scriptures, unless they were already sort of on the path to, to conversion or the Bible calls them God-fearers. They, they were pagan believers in the Jewish God. And so this is what we see. What I just read, Acts 17, 2 and 3, this is Paul preaching in Athens in the synagogue. This is what it looks like when he preaches outside the synagogue to the pagans. Acts 17, 22, 23. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For I as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one, one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. So there was an ongoing competition in pagan culture for who was the supreme God. That was the question. Who's the God I should worship? What is the right way to live? Who should I, should I be striving to please in order to live correctly? That was a question that was part of both religion and philosophy in the culture. And Paul is answering their big questions. The gospel is the message of Jesus to culture. And so when he addresses a different culture, non-Jewish culture, his message is adjusted. It's no longer the Messiah has come who fulfills prophecy. It's Jesus is the chosen one of the true God, the one that you acknowledge but don't worship. So here we are in the 21st century, and we've inherited a gospel message that isn't specifically in Scripture as such. Nobody in the New Testament preaches, your problem is guilt, the solution is forgiveness, and the ultimate aim is to go to heaven. Sure, those verses are in there, but that is not a message, a specific message, that is preached by any one individual in the New Testament. We've actually inherited that from medieval culture. Yes, it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. There are some people that are really, really interested in history, like probably 4.2% of, of Crossland's Church, and that's not enough for me to go through the history, so I won't. But at a certain point, medieval culture emerged, and, and there was feudalism, so kings and lords and vassals and peasants and all of that. And the theology, the, our understanding of God, was understood through that lens of, of honor and guilt. And so for hundreds of years, that was the message. The issue became guilt. What maintains my right standing with God? What guarantees my eternal security? Those are the two questions. What happens to me in eternity? Do I go to heaven or hell? And what maintains my right standing? We became increasingly individualized, more so than in Bible times, more so than in medieval times. Part of that's because of urbanization, part of that's because of the religious reformation, the Christian reformation. And yet all through that, for hundreds of years, up until the 1900s, our primary concern was still guilt. It was even less about God's kingdom than it was about you, just you. Not your city, not your community, not your family, you. What is your standing before God? And your problem is guilt. The solution is forgiveness. The ultimate aim is going to heaven when we die. It's not the culture we live in anymore. We live in an individualist, post-Christian culture. The basic values, 
Well, the most basic values, I think, are still there from Christianity or Judeo-Christian values or whatever. But some of the things we take for granted as followers of Jesus no longer exist in our culture. One of those things is that guilt has been dismissed. One big question in our culture that is sort of, sort of always there, and we sort of hold it in tension, is are you the result of nature or nurture? Are you the result of your upbringing or the surrounding culture or your DNA, your genetics? And because of the dominance of that question, a lot of our, the quant consequences of our individual decisions are kind of pushed to the side. We no longer understand ourselves in terms of guilt. And in, it's partly appropriate because for too long, Circumstances were ignored. What you inherited from your parents was ignored. The Bible acknowledges that, but we didn't. And so people were many times judged, ignoring mitigating circumstances or, or factors that lead to the decisions we make. So here's what's happened for us. I'm going to try to demonstrate this with a little bit of an animation here. So our culture has maintained a certain basic value consistency for a long time. That's the guilt and heaven thing. So we, we have a culture, and this is the culture of the, of the modern age. The presence of Jesus, do we have that animation? Is that, yeah, thanks. Because I, I want it's really hard to grasp, it's easier to grasp with pictures. So this is our modern culture. The presence of Jesus' followers is embedded within that culture. This is the church or um, followers of Jesus, and they've matched the questions of the culture with an appropriate gospel response. The whole forgiveness or guilt forgiveness heaven thing is an appropriate response to a modern culture. The church and its message is the connection point between Jesus and culture. What's happened over time is the church, the culture, our culture has shifted away from that. We call it postmodern. Used to be modern. Uh, modernism grew out of urbanization, industrialization, and now we're in postmodernism, which is informed by mass warfare, cynicism towards that modern optimism, reduction in poverty, an increase in affluence, but an increase in meaninglessness as we face potential environmental disaster. And so the questions have changed. What used to be an appropriate response, guilt and forgiveness, is now understood to be irrelevant. It doesn't work anymore. To preach that message requires convincing someone of their guilt that they don't know they have, so you can offer them a solution, forgiveness, that they never knew they needed and they're not convinced they need, and they probably still don't believe. So rather than living the way things used to be, followers of Jesus need to pay attention to the change and move into that postmodern understanding, which can be challenging, even threatening, and to live in it, and to listen for the new questions and respond to those appropriately. This is where we are in Canada today. The answers that we are offering no longer answer the new questions people have. The gospel is the message of Jesus to individuals in culture. So when culture changes, the message has to adjust to accommodate that change. Jim Collins, who's a business guru, uh, he wrote a great book called Good to Great. Starts out good, gets better. And he wrote a book called Built to Last, Preserving the Core 
uh, built to last, preserve the core stimulate process. And what he says is this, I'm gonna read a quote from the book. He says, truly great companies understand the difference between what should never change and what should be open for change, between what is genuinely sacred, his word, sacred, and what is not. For the church, for us as followers of Jesus, the core is Jesus. That doesn't change. Everything we are and everything we do comes from him. He's Savior. He's Lord. Although many people today don't know what he saves us from. The core doesn't change. How he's communicated to culture changes. And our message has become obsolete, and it needs to change. Last week, we had a message entitled, Send Me. And this is where the rubber hits the road. Why does this even matter? Everything I've talked about, why does it matter? Because if we are asking God to send us to further the kingdom of God, by making our work our worship, by responding with love to correct what is wrong in the world, and to announce that Jesus is Lord, and to give people tangible connections to what that means in their life. That's why this matters. Romans 1.16, Claudette opened the service with this. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. The Jew first and also the Gentile. Remember that the message was adjusted for the Jew and the Gentile. It's still the gospel message, but it can answer different questions. One interpretation of that verse, the target audience determined the application. Culture is always the context of the gospel. I heard the story years ago um, that an evangelist went into Asia and was preaching this message to uh, the problem is guilt, the solution is forgiveness, and the ultimate aim is eternity in heaven. And he was not getting anywhere. He, he preached and preached and preached and preached, and he didn't get responses. And then he started paying attention, and he realized that in Asia, they did not care about guilt. It wasn't their primary concern. The primary concern was shame. And so he adjusted his gospel preaching and said, Jesus rescues you from shame, so that in him, you have honor. And the response was overwhelming. All of a sudden, people started responding to the gospel message. Because in our Western culture, we have made guilt the number one question. And in that culture, that wasn't the case. Our younger generation in North America is walking away from Jesus, walking away from the church en masse. I don't want to... I don't, I don't want you to... Take that flippantly. The younger generation in North America is walking away from the church at alarming rates. And there are churches that fight over the style of music. The churches that fight over technology. And the younger people, the next generation, and I'm not talking about 15-year-olds, talking about 30-year-olds, 35-year-olds are walking away from the message of Jesus at alarming rates because the message we've preached to them does not answer their questions. Solving the guilt problem may have worked for you. Maybe it worked for you because you grew up in a church and you were always told that's what the problem was. It's fine. Maybe it worked for you because God in his mercy transcends the weakness of our ability to communicate. But it's not the question being asked by the culture. Why does it matter? Because if it's not your question, it is the question of your kids. It is the que question of your grandchildren that matters. 
The questions that matter are the questions being asked by your coworkers, the questions that are being asked by the people in the grocery store. And what are these questions that are being asked that are not about guilt? There's a few. The purpose of this series is to deal with one of them. Who am I? Where does my identity come from? Who are you? The easy answer, of course, is, well, I'm me. Maybe we could be more specific. What I'd like for you to do, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not this week, whether you grasp all of this or not, ask yourself this question, who is the person that I am? Spend some time and think about that. Write some stuff down. Who is the person that I am? What makes me who I am? How do I know who I am? Our continent is filled with people that cannot adequately answer that question because the, the resources of our culture do not offer a good solution. But you know who does offer a good solution? Jesus offers a solution to that question. So that's what we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks. What is the basis of your identity? What does Jesus say to who you are? And when somebody in our culture is asking the question, we need to listen to what they're asking and we need to listen to the Holy Spirit and how he wants to respond to that question. Maybe you're listening today and you're asking that question because you're not a follower of Jesus. You go, I, I, I'm interested to hear what else you have to say. But even though I haven't heard the whole thing, I'm ready to jump in today. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Who you are finds its maximum expression and identity in Jesus the Messiah who went to the cross to overcome the world's problems, our individual problems, and go through to the other side, coming through death to resurrection, to offer you the identity of the person you should be, of the person you can be, of the person you were created to be. You can have that. It's as simple as ABC. A, admit your need. The problem is I'm not sure who I am, and I have no way of answering that question. B, believe or trust. I am going to trust that Jesus has the answer that I need. I don't understand it all, but I trust enough to make a step forward into this offer of relationship with our Creator. And then C is commit, which means jumping all in, both feet. Trusting and jumping in that Jesus has the answer for you that you need, and that's what you're betting on. And if you want to make that decision today, I want to lead you in a prayer. Pray something like this. I'd welcome you to use my words or, or follow along, um, even out loud. Pray something like this. Father in heaven, creator of the universe, I admit that I'm struggling with who I am. I don't have an answer to that. But today, I'm choosing to trust that Jesus does. I am choosing to believe that I can be who I was created to be in you. And so today, I am choosing to commit to the life that you have for me. Everything I am, everything I have, all my ambitions, my future, my past, my mistakes, I'm throwing it down in your feet and saying, yes, I'm all in with you.
Thank you for welcoming me into your family. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are making that decision for the first time today, I want to, um, I want to challenge you to connect with us. Uh, this, is not, this new spiritual life is not a life that we are intended to live alone. We are called to live in community, and that's part of where identity comes from. And I know it's really hard right now because we're online only, but we're going to do our best to walk with you, to, to invite you to walk with us and give you the tools you need to live out that new identity. And I want to challenge you to connect with us. The best way to do it is go to your smart device, um, punch in crosslands.live in a browser, crosslands.live, and then click the Follow Jesus button and give us your contact info. So follow Jesus on crosslands.live and we'll get a hold of you and give you, we'll help you on this journey. We all need help with this. I have a, um, I'm going to finish with one text message. Question came in. Love the message, but I feel like when I put it into practice, the pushback I feel from Christians is overwhelming. When the gospel I share looks different than the guilt-centered one others grew up with, I'm told it's wrong and that I am not a real Christian. How do you deal with the resistance of Christians to good news specific to our culture? I, I don't know that you need to. Um, when the car w was developed and invented, the automobile, there was pushback from the buggy whip community. Who's going to buy their buggy whips now? Just keep making cars. Building gas stations. I'm not saying that new is always better and the future is always better, but I'm saying for the message to be relevant, why do you need to argue with other people about it? If, if, if they're giving you a hard time, then don't talk about it. Talk to the people you know that don't know Jesus. We are not, our job is not to convince other Christians that it's about identity, not guilt. That's not our job. Our job is to talk to people who don't know Jesus and say, Jesus offers you a solution for your identity. I, I know that sounds kind of passive-aggressive, but I don't really, like, why fight about it with other people? So I hope that's a good enough answer. Who are you? Who is the person that you are? What makes you up who you are? We are going to explore that in the next few weeks. I would like, ask you to continue to tune in um, because they're very, very big questions. Maybe it's not a big question for you, but it's a big question in our culture. So come back with us next week and uh, I'm just going to close the service in prayer today. And, and don't forget, we always have prayer time at the end. We keep the stream running so you can actually engage these questions with God. Ask Him. Don't just talk to yourself about it. There's only so much we know. He knows a lot more. But ask him those identity questions in prayer once we're done. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much that you are our powerful creator and that you are good, that you love us. And Father, as we journey through these identity questions, Father, I pray that you would give us insight to be confident in who we are. But I also pray that you would give us eyes and ears to see those around us that are asking the identity question. And I pray that you would Help us to build our awareness of what you offer directly to this culture, not translated through other cultural expressions. But we would be able to be an effective mouthpiece for you to answer the questions that people are asking, to offer your resources to people that are struggling with this. And Father, I ask that you would give us success in this, not, not for our reputation or our growth, but for your glory, for your reputation, for the furtherance of your kingdom in this world. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Crosslands Church Podcast. 
Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or the Google Play Store so that it comes straight to your device. And to find out more about Crosslands Church, you can visit us at crosslands.ca. Join us next week for another message to help you experience the life with God you've been missing.